Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 164, Classic Tales from Early Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm going to be sharing two classic tales from the earliest years of Puritan Boston. One of them might be considered comedy, but the other one is pure high drama. First, we'll visit the diaries of Boston founder John Winthrop and find two accounts of unexplained lights in the sky and other phenomena that might have been the first UFO sightings in Boston. After that, we'll fast forward to the era of the English Civil Wars, when two men who'd signed the death warrant for a king decided that Boston was the only safe refuge from his heir's assassins. But before we share these classic tales, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a recent episode of the podcast Ben Franklin's World. In episode 167, host Liz Covart interviews Thomas Wickman, author of a book called Snowshoe Country, an environmental and cultural history of winter in the early Northeast. Set mostly in the 17th and early 18th centuries, the book outlines what winter was like at that time and how the residents of New England, both native and English, experienced it. While it obviously covers a much wider geography than just Boston, Boston does play a part. Wickman shares stories of violent winter storms where the ties rose so quickly around Boston's wharves that the ice pack heaved and damaged the piers. There were stories of three Native Americans who died of hypothermia on Boston Neck after getting caught in an unexpected storm. And even the stories that range farther afield tell us more about early New England and thus early Boston. Learn how Native Americans used specialized snowshoes to thrive in their winter hunting grounds, and learn how English settlers later adopted the same technology to send military patrols into the same hunting grounds, disrupting native food sources. Even if you don't get a chance to check out the book, you can learn a lot from the podcast. That's Ben Franklin's World, Episode 167. And for the upcoming event this week, I have a whole series of historically inspired beer tastings from our friends at Boston by Foot. They've partnered with both Sam Adams and Democracy Brewing, and they have one tasting planned with each brewery in the months of January, February, and March. If you're as bad at math as I am, that's a total of six tastings. The historical subjects for each event span a wide range. At Sam Adams, you'll hear about the early history of beer in Boston in January, then fun historical tales in February, including Faneuil Hall's Golden Grasshopper Weathervane, the state's Sacred Cod, and more. And then finally in March, the topic will be the remarkable women of Jamaica Plain. Over at Democracy Brewing, the first tasting will be structured around the stories that inspired the names of their beers, including James Michael Curley, Pullman Porters, and Labor Organizers. February brings tales of community solidarity, and the topic in March will be radical women like Lucy Stone and Melnia Cass, not too different from what's happening over at Sam Adams. All the events at Democracy will begin at 2 p.m. on Sundays, while the Sam Adams tastings will be held at 6 p.m. on Mondays. Each tasting will be $20, and they are obviously 21+. plus. Head over to hubhistory.com slash 164 to find a link to the complete schedule and ticket information. We'll also have a link to the Ben Franklin's World episode about the history of winter in New England, this week's Boston Book Club pick. We hope you enjoy the classic episodes we've picked out for you this week. 
It's our way of making sure that our listeners always have something to keep them entertained, even in weeks when Nikki and I don't have the time to create something brand new for you. This week, I'm spending my writing time trying to prep for an upcoming author interview that I think you're going to like. There are times when creating this podcast feels like a hamster running in a wheel. That's why we're so grateful to everyone who listens, and especially to our sponsors on Patreon, including our newest sponsors, David K. and Jonathan P. If you'd like to help us make Hub History, check out patreon.com slash hubhistory, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the support link. For as little as $2 a month, you can help ensure the future of this podcast. A very special thank you to all our new and returning sponsors. Now it's time for this week's main topic. First up, we have a story that originally aired as episode 63 back in January 2018. In the earliest days of the Puritan settlement in Massachusetts Bay Colony, the residents of Boston wouldn't have had the vocabulary to describe flying saucers or alien spacecraft. However, even otherwise sober men like Boston founder John Winthrop believed they had seen unidentified and unexplainable objects flying in the night sky. Winthrop's diary describes close encounters that supposedly occurred in 1639 and 1644. There were unexplained lights darting around the sky in formation at impossible speeds, ghostly sounds, and witnesses who claimed to have lost time. It's a scene straight out of the X-Files, except believers consider these to be the first recorded UFO sightings in North America. In this year, one James Everill, a sober, discreet man, and two others, saw a great light in the night at Muddy River. When it stood still, it flamed up, and it was about three yards square. When it ran, it was contracted into the figure of a swine. It ran as swift as an arrow towards Charlestown, and so up and down for about two or three hours. They were come down in their lighter about a mile, and when it was over, they found themselves carried quite back against the tide to the place where they came from. Diverse other credible persons saw the same light, after about the same place. So says Governor John Winthrop in a journal entry from March 1st, 1639, detailing Boston's first recorded UFO sighting. Winthrop led the first large wave of immigrants from England to what would become the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630, and served as governor for 12 of the colony's first 20 years. His vision of the colony as a Puritan city upon a hill set an example of communal charity, affection, and unity that has endured for centuries. On January 9, 1961, President-elect John F. Kennedy returned the phrase to prominence during an address delivered to the General Court of Massachusetts. I have been guided by the standard John Winthrop set before his shipmates on the flagship Arabella 331 years ago, as they too face the task of building a new government on a perilous frontier. We must always consider, he said, that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Today, the eyes of all people are truly upon us, and our governments, in every branch, at every level, national, state, and local, must be as a city upon a hill, 
constructed and inhabited by men aware of their great trust and their great responsibilities. For we are setting out upon a voyage in 1961 no less hazardous than that undertaken by the Arabella in 1630. We are committing ourselves to tasks of statecraft no less awesome than that of governing the Massachusetts Bay Colony, beset as it was then by terror without and disorder within. History will not judge our endeavors, and a government cannot be selected merely on the basis of color or creed or even party affiliation. Neither will competence and loyalty and stature, while essential to the utmost, suffice in times such as these. For those to whom much is given, much is required. President Ronald Reagan referred to Winthrop's vision on the eve of his election in 1980. I have quoted John Winthrop's words more than once on the campaign trail this year, for I believe that Americans in 1980 are every bit as committed to that vision of a shining city on a hill as were those long-ago settlers. And he returned to it in his January 11, 1989 farewell address to the nation. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. So what we're saying is, Winthrop has some credibility. Now getting back to 1639, James Everill and his two friends were in a lighter, a small flat-bottomed boat that was used to haul cargo in shallow coastal waters. Winthrop's journal says that they were at Muddy River at the time. Today that's the Back Bay Fins, where the slow-moving brook runs out through Kenmore Square to the river at Charlesgate. Back then, It was basically the middle of nowhere. Cambridge was still made up of just a handful of families at the time, so the lighter was probably taking a load back and forth between Boston and Watertown, and the mouth of the Muddy River was roughly halfway between the two. We would consider that spot to be along the banks of the Charles River, but many maps back then put the mouth of the Charles roughly where the BU Bridge is today, with both the Charles and the Muddy River draining into the Back Bay. In the days before the Back Bay was filled in to create a neighborhood, it was a tidal estuary, a network of shallow channels spiderwebbed between hummocks of marsh grass. So Everill and his friends had traveled about a mile down this estuary when they saw lights darting across the sky and forming the shape of a pig for several hours. Perhaps due to a glitch in the matrix, their boat moved back upstream against the tide. If the X-Files have taught me anything, it's that this is a common element to UFO sightings and experiences a sense of time standing still, or passing without awareness. Today we have some stereotypes about the type of people who have UFO encounters, and it seems like maybe they did in 1639 too, because Winthrop pointedly notes that James Everill is sober and discreet, and that the other witnesses were credible. So what happened? A UFO is an unidentified flying object, but the fact is... Lots of things were unidentified in the 1600s. It's really mind-boggling to imagine living in Boston in 1639, just unimaginable on so many levels, but perhaps the biggest difference is the lack of our current scientific knowledge. Many of our fellow countrymen take science for granted, but here at Hub History, 
we believe in modern medicine, astrophysics, climate change, etc., etc. Jake and Nikki of 1638 would have known that earthquakes sometimes happen, and one was felt in Boston that year, but we wouldn't know why. And we would have been familiar with the experience of an eclipse, as happened in 1659, but we would have read a lot of superstitious meaning into it. And without the germ theory of disease, sickness could be a punishment from God or the curse of a witch. And through all of these mysteries, we would have been compelled to make sense of them. But how do you make sense of an unexplainable occurrence? You could use religion or the supernatural. And at that time, those two ideas were very closely related. As an example, today, someone who is fairly religious will likely think of the devil in a very abstract way, as a force that exists in the world. But in 1639, the devil was a tangible creature, someone who roamed the earth that you could very likely run into if you stayed out past curfew. James Savage added the following footnote about the 1639 sighting in his 1825 edition of Winthrop's Journal, about 200 years worth of science later. This account of an ignis fatus may easily be believed on testimony less respectable than that which was adduced. Some operation of the devil or other power beyond the customary agents of nature was probably imagined by the relators and the hearers of that age. And the wonder of being carried a mile against the tide became important corroboration of the imagination. Perhaps they were wafted during the two or three hours' astonishment for so moderate a distance by the wind. But if this suggestion be rejected, we might suppose that the eddy flowing always in our rivers, contrary to the tide in the channel, rather than the meteor, carried the lighter back. It's an interesting line of speculation. Perhaps these upstanding gentlemen spotted an impressive meteor shower, or maybe they saw an ignis fatus, which is a pale light that can appear over marshland at night due to the combustion of gas from decomposed organic matter. Five years later, Winthrop described another supernatural incident in Boston. In January 1644, Captain John Chaddock's ship blew up at Battery Wharf in the North End, when one of the crew snapped his flintlock pistol and created a spark that ignited kegs of gunpowder. Five men were killed, and soon after, unexplained lights began rising from the waters and shooting across the sky above the harbor. The citizens of Boston, applying both religion and superstition, deduced that one of Chaddock's men had conjured up the spirits of the dead sailors, causing the mysterious lights. Winthrop writes, The 18th of this month, two lights were seen near Boston, and a week after, the like was seen again. A light like the moon arose about the northeast point in Boston and met the former at Noddles Island, and there they closed in one, and then parted, and closed and parted diverse times, and so they went over the hill in the island and vanished. Sometimes they shot out flames, and sometimes sparkles. This was about eight of the clock in the evening and was seen by many. About the same time, a voice was heard upon the water between Boston and Dorchester, calling out in a most dreadful manner, Boy, boy, come away, come away. And it suddenly shifted from one place to another over a great distance about twenty times. It was heard by diverse godly persons. 
About fourteen days after, the same voice and the same dreadful manner was heard by others on the other side of town towards Noddles Island. For context, Noddles Island is now East Boston, and the northeastern point that he referred to is part of the North End. So when he says that the two lights shot up in the air from those points and met, they met right over the inner harbor of the main shipping channel. At this, the moral and God-fearing citizens of Boston were desperate for an explanation. Public discussion and investigation revealed that the sailor who had snapped the pistol professed to the rest of the crew to be a necromancer, a communicator with the spirit world. Former crew members stated that he had wondrous powers. The townsfolk found it to be very meaningful that all the bodies except his had been recovered and buried. At that time, there was a belief that spirits would cease to roam this world when their earthly tabernacle had been given a Christian interment. As such, it was clear that this paranormal disturbance was due to the failure to recover the body of this unfortunate sailor. Winthrop continues, These prodigies having some reference to the place where Captain Chaddock's penance was blown up a little before, gave occasion of speech of that man who was the cause of it, who professed himself to have skill in necromancy, and to have done some strange things on his way from Virginia hither, and was suspected to have murdered his master there, but the magistrates here had no notice of him till after he was blown up. This is to be observed, that his fellows were all found, and others who were blown up in the former ship were also found, and others who have miscarried by drowning, etc., have usually been found, but this man was never found. It's all very mysterious. But you know who fancied himself an expert in otherworldly happenings? Cotton Mather. The man literally wrote the book on witchcraft, as well as the Magnalia Christi Americana, which roughly translates to The Glorious Works of Christ in America. The book's subtitle is The Ecclesiastical History of New England from its first planting in 1620 until the year of our Lord, 1698. So it's essentially an early history text. It consists of seven books collected into two volumes, and it details the religious development of Massachusetts and the other colonies in New England from 1620 to 1698. Notable passages include Mather's descriptions of the Salem witch trials, in which he criticizes some of the methods of the court and attempts to distance himself from the event, his account of the escape of Hannah Dustin from the Abenaki, the story of the founding of Harvard College, and yet another UFO sighting recounted through a letter from a pastor in New Haven. In the year 1647, besides much other lading, a far more rich treasure of passengers, five or six of which were persons of chief note and worth in New Haven, put themselves on board a new ship built at Rhode Island of about 150 tons, but so walty, or liable to roll over, that the master, Lamberton, often said that she would prove their grave. In the month of January, cutting their way through much ice on which they were accompanied with the Reverend Mr. Davenport besides many other friends, with many fears as well as prayers and tears, they set sail. Mr. Davenport, in prayer with an observable emphasis, used these words, Lord, if it be thy pleasure to bury these our friends in the bottom of the sea, they are thine, save them. 
Having never received news of the ship's arrival in England or letters from any of her passengers, the ship was presumed lost at sea. In June next ensuing, a great thunderstorm arose out of the northwest, after which, the hemisphere being serene, about an hour before sunset, a ship of like dimensions with the aforesaid, with her canvas and colors abroad, though the wind northernly, appeared in the air coming up from her harbor's mouth, which lies southward from the town, seemingly with her sails filled under a fresh gale, holding her course north, and continuing under observation, sailing against the wind for the space of half an hour. Many were drawn to behold this great work of God, yea, the very children cried out, There's a brave ship! At length, crowding up as far as there is usually water sufficient for such a vessel, and so near some of the spectators, as that they imagined a man might hurl a stone on board her. Her main top seemed to be blown off, but left hanging in the shrouds. Then her mizzen top, then all her masting seemed blown away by the board. Quickly, after the hulk brought on to the careen, she overset, and so vanished into a smoky cloud, which in some time dissipated, leaving, as everywhere else, a clean air. The admiring spectators could distinguish the several colors of each part, the principal rigging and such proportions, as caused not only the generality of persons to say, this was the mold of their ship, and this was her tragic end. But Mr. Davenport, also in public, declared to this effect that God had condescended for the quieting of their afflicted spirits this extraordinary account of his sovereign disposal of those for whom so many fervent prayers were made continually. Thus I am, sir, your humble servant, James Pierpont. Is it possible that the good reverend had a really vivid dream and then later in life remembered it as real? Something in the water? Who knows? But UFO sightings in the Boston area continue to this day. In June of 2017, three young hikers from Plymouth got lost in the Blue Hills after dark and had to be rescued by state police with dogs and helicopters. Asked what went wrong, a member of the party said that they weren't as prepared as we should have been. We should have brought flashlights and charged our phones and maybe brought better hiking gear. When Channel 7 asked them why they were there, another hiker said, oh, We came up here hoping to see some UFOs. So you're like a UFO magnet. I am, yeah, literally. Yeah. So did you, did you have any luck? Or? Yes. We saw yeah. a couple. Yeah, we saw some we had never seen before. We saw um, this one light that had, well, we saw these two ships that had these like bright spotlights. And then we saw this like weird orb thing that was like a spotlight, sort of. Too bad yeah. they couldn't lead you back down, though. Yeah, no, they weren't very helpful. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, they didn't have John Winthrop to vouch for their credibility. Next up, let's look at a story that begins 36 years after the last UFO sighting we just described. Boston and the Bay Colony were still quite young, but they had a reputation. A reputation for rebelliousness. This is a story with a cast of characters that includes everyone from Increase Mather to Nathaniel Hawthorne, encompassing two kings, two continents, two colonies, and royal governors Endicott, Andros, and Hutchinson. It's the story of two judges who signed the death warrant for a king, became celebrities in Boston, 
and then had to go into hiding to escape the greatest manhunt in British history. King Charles I of England, Scotland, and Ireland is a familiar figure to the Massachusetts history buff. In part, because he gave his name to Charlestown and to the Charles River, but also because it was his signature and seal that in 1629 gave a grant to the Massachusetts Bay Company of all that part of New England in America, which lies and extends between a great river there commonly called Merrimack River and a certain other river there called Charles River, being in the bottom of a certain bay there, commonly called Massachusetts Bay, and all lands whatsoever lying within the limits aforesaid, north and south, in latitude and breadth, and in length and longitude throughout the main lands there, from the Atlantic Ocean in the east part to the South Sea on the west part, and all lands and grounds, place and places, soils, woods and wood grounds, havens, ports, rivers, waters, and all mines and minerals in the said lands and premises, or any part thereof, and free liberty of fishing in or within any of the rivers or waters within the bounds and limits aforesaid, and the seas thereunto adjoining, and all fishes, whales, baleen, and sturgeons that shall at any time hereafter be taken within the said seas or waters. However, soon after the Arbella fleet brought the settlers of Puritan Boston to these shores, Charles began cracking down on Puritans and other religious nonconformists back in Old England. Tensions soon rose, with the conflict sorting itself into the king, with royalist supporters backed by traditionalist Anglicans and a Catholic minority on one side, and the parliamentarian roundheads on the other side, led by Oliver Cromwell and supported by most Puritans. By 1642, the conflict had devolved into open warfare. Fighting would continue on different fronts and between different combatants until Charles II was exiled in 1651. His father's reign, though, would end in January 1647, when Charles I's alliance with a Scottish Presbyterian army evaporated and his former allies delivered him into the hands of the Roundheads as a prisoner. Two years later, after Cromwell had consolidated his power into a body known as the Rump Parliament, Charles I was put on trial for treason. The charges said that wicked designs, wars, and evil practices of him, the said Charles Stuart, have been and are carried on for the advancement and upholding of a personal interest of will, power, and pretended prerogative to himself and his family against the public interest, common right, liberty, justice, and peace of the people of this nation. He was judged by a 68-member committee and found guilty. Fifty-nine of the judges signed a warrant for the execution of King Charles I. Historian Alexander Winston describes what happened next. The death warrant was signed on Monday and the business was then pushed with all haste. At 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning, it was January 30th, 1649, Captain Hacker brought King Charles out of St. James Palace. The air was still and very cold. Ice was piled up under the Thames bridges. Charles walked briskly, urging his guard to be quick. March apace. To the solemn muted roll of drums, he crossed the park between lines of soldiers and entered Whitehall. The crowd that had streamed in from all over London shivered in the streets, packed as tight as pebbles on a beach. About two o'clock, Hacker, who was observed to have been seized with trembling, escorted the king along the corridors of Whitehall Palace and through a dismantled window of the banqueting hall 
directly onto the broad, black-draped scaffold. There, at last, Charles saw the block, with its iron staples and tackle, the close ranks of soldiery, the masked headsmen, grotesque in false grizzled beards and wigs. With composure, the king made a short speech, and then, handing his George, a jeweled collar from which hung a pendant of St. George slaying the dragon, to Bishop William Juxon with one word, remember. He pushed his hair up under a white satin cap and lay down on the block. The axe glinted. A shudder ran through the crowd, and a vast groan echoed up the streets. In that instant, the 59 signers of the death warrant became regicides. In faraway Boston, residents had been largely insulated from the chaos and bloodshed of the English Civil War, though a few had gone back to the mother country to fight alongside Cromwell, and the Puritan majority were vocal backers of the Roundheads. For instance, Harvard President Henry Dunster announced, Truly we are all one heart. I mean the body of the godly in New England, with the parliament and army, and see that Christ hath carried them beyond men in themselves, in all that they have, by his impulse, in a sort been driven to do. They were insulated, but not ignorant. On June 3, 1649, Bostonian Adam Winthrop's journal records how the town received the momentous news of Charles's fate. Here is now a London ship come in that bringeth the news that the king is beheaded. At First Church in Boston, the preeminent Puritan minister John Cotton used a 1651 Thanksgiving sermon to provide scriptural justification for the execution of a monarch. The chief differences in England are principally three, contained in three words but comprehending much matter. And let me briefly open them that if it be the will of God, some reconcilement may be endeavored among them to prevent such dangers as both nations may fall into. There is some difference about the king, some difference about the covenant, and some difference about the parliament. If there could be drawn up a union in these three in our native country, and in such here as adhere to them, I should hope other things may easily be accorded. First, it is a matter of great thought, heart, putting to death the late king. It is time when the spirits of men are so much exasperated as they be that men's consciences should be a little satisfied in that point, especially such as scruple the lawfulness of it for one of scripture light. Cotton gives a long scriptural justification for the actions of the rump parliament, the betrayal of the Scottish covenanters, and most of all, the decision to behead Charles I. For those who are still uncertain, he cites several biblical examples of rebellions against kings and gives this answer. There is a lawful and loyal conspiracy as well as a disloyal and wicked conspiracy. Therefore, it is not an unknown thing that loyal subjects of a mean state have conspired against those that have been set over them by the Lord when once they depart from God and do such acts as have been dangerous and destructive to the commonwealth. So the people of Boston were being taught that the execution of a king was justified, since he had departed from God and been dangerous and destructive to the commonwealth. With the king gone, the regicides were living large in Cromwell's England. One of these men was Edward Whaley, whose name was fourth on the king's death warrant, immediately below the Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell himself. 
Fourteenth on the warrant was the name Richard Goff, Whaley's son-in-law. They had both fought against Charles I, voted for his execution, and now continued the fight against the Royalists, who had shifted their support to the young heir Charles II. They were among 31 of the 59 judges who were still alive 11 years later when Charles II was restored to the throne. 19 of them were given sentences of life in prison. Nine of the remaining living were hanged, drawn, and quartered. Three of the men who had died in the intervening decade were dug up, and their corpses were similarly hanged, drawn, and quartered. Charles II was serious about getting revenge for his daddy. Those who remained sensed that this was perhaps not a time when it was pertinent for Charles I's judges to be easily found in Old England. Any who wished to keep their heads and entrails intact had to make the decision to pack up and leave. And since Boston has a reputation as the most Puritan town in the empire, and its preeminent minister has been preaching the scriptural necessity of Charles I's execution, Edward Whaley and Richard Goff decide to come to our fair city. In his comprehensive history of Massachusetts Bay, Loyalist Governor Thomas Hutchinson recalls Whaley and Goff's arrival in Boston in 1660. In the ship, which arrived from London on the 27th of July, there came passengers Colonel Whaley and Colonel Goff, two of the late king's judges. Colonel Goff brought testimonials from Mr. John Rowe and Mr. Seth Wood, two ministers of a church in Westminster. Colonel Whaley had been a member of Thomas Goodwin's church. They left London before the king was proclaimed. It does not appear that they were among the most obnoxious of the judges, but as it was expected, vengeance would be taken of some of them, and a great many had fled, they did not think it safe to remain. They did not attempt to conceal their persons or characters when they arrived in Boston, but immediately went to the governor, Mr. Endicott, who received them very courteously. They were visited by the principal persons of the town, and among others, they take note of Colonel Crown's coming to see them. He was a noted royalist. Although they did not disguise themselves, yet they chose to reside at Cambridge, a village about four miles distant from the town, where they went the first day they arrived. They went publicly to meetings on the Lord's Days, and to occasional lectures, fasts, and thanksgivings, and were admitted to the sacrament and attended private meetings for devotion, visited many of the principal towns, and were frequently at Boston, and once, when insulted there, the person insulting them was bound to his good behavior. They appeared grave, serious, and devout, and the rank they had sustained commanded respect. Whaley had been one of Cromwell's lieutenant generals, and Goff a major general, It is not strange that they should meet with this favorable reception, nor was this reception any contempt of the authority in England. They were known to have been two of the king's judges, but King Charles II was not proclaimed when the ship that brought them left London. They had the news of it in the channel. Now, the reason we leave it up to Governor Hutchinson to give us this introduction is because he is the only historian who has ever been able to conduct primary source research on the New England regicides. He had access to a priceless source, which he borrowed from Samuel Mather, who inherited it from Increase Mather. 
Hutchinson describes it in his own words. Goff kept a journal or a diary from the day he left Westminster, May 4th, until the year 1667, which, together with several other papers belonging to him, I have in my possession. Almost the whole is in characters or shorthand, not very difficult to decipher. The story of these persons has never yet been published to the world. It has never been known in New England. Their papers, after their death, were collected and have remained near a hundred years in a library in Boston. It must give some entertainment to the curious. You may recall from our conversation with Brooke Barbier that during the Stamp Act riots in 1765, the Boston mob laid siege to the governor's North End home. In the end, he was unharmed, but his house, his possessions, and, tragically, his library were destroyed. Among the many irreplaceable documents that disappeared that day were Goff's diary and his few remaining letters. As Hutchinson reports, the military rank the two men had held commanded respect in New England. Here were two generals who'd seen action in traditional set-piece battles between the Roundheads and the Royalists, and they had arrived into a society with very few military men from the old country. We had our militia with its elected officers, but Whaley and Goff stood on a different plane. This awe for their martial careers inspired two stories about Goff in particular that have passed into folklore. It's impossible to tell to what degree either is true, but probably not much. The first takes place during the early months after their arrival in Boston, and the second takes place a decade and a half later in a small town on the very edges of the Puritan settlements. We take a highly stylized account of the first tale from the book A History of the Three Judges of King Charles I by Ezra Stiles. Stiles was a congregational minister in Connecticut who would later become president of Yale. He wrote a history of New England at about the same time Hutchinson was working on his. The two men often exchanged notes, though they had very different viewpoints. Stiles returned to the story of the regicides decades later in 1793, as the French Revolution ran its course, and the idea of a king killer was seen very differently than it had been by a royal governor. Stiles gives us the definitive version of this legend. To show the dexterity of the judges at fencing, this story is told, that while at Boston there appeared a gallant person there, some say a fencing master, who on a stage erected for that purpose walked it for several days, challenging and defying any to play with them at swords. At length, one of the judges, disguised in a rustic dress, holding in one hand a cheese wrapped in a napkin for a shield, with a broomstick whose mop he had besmeared with dirty puddle water as he passed along, thus equipped he mounted the stage. The fencing master railed at him for his impudence, asked what business he had there, and bid him be gone. The judge stood his ground, upon which the gladiator made a pass at him with his sword to drive him off. A rencounter ensued. The judge received the sword into the cheese and held it till he drew the mop of the broom over his mouth and gave the gentleman a pair of whiskers. The gentleman made another pass, and plunging his sword a second time, it was caught and held in the cheese— till the broom was drawn over his eyes. At a third lunge, the sword was caught again, till the mop of the broom was rubbed gently all over his face. Upon this, the gentleman let fall or laid aside his small sword and took up the broadsword, 
and came at him with that. Upon which the judge said, Stop, sir. Hitherto, you see, I have only played with you and not attempted to hurt you. But if you come at me now with the broadsword, know that I will certainly take your life. The firmness and determinateness with which he spake struck the gentleman, who, desisting, exclaimed, Who can you be? You are either Goff, Whaley, or the devil, for there was no other man in England that could beat me. And so the disguised judge retired into obscurity, leaving the spectators to enjoy the diversion of the scene and the vanquishment of the boasting champion. Hence it is proverbial in some parts of New England, in speaking of a champion at athletic or other exercises, to say that none can beat him but Goff, Whaley, or the devil. As a side note, isn't it a shame that this proverb is passed out of the common vernacular? Wouldn't you just love to hear a Pats fan call into sports talk radio and say that when it comes to Tom Brady, none can beat him but Goff, Whaley, or the devil? After so publicly supporting Oliver Cromwell against the Stuart crown, Boston found itself on thin ice with the restored monarchy. After a quick deliberation, the provincial legislature issued a public statement on August 7, 1660. For as much as Charles II is undoubted King of Great Britain, and all other His Majesty's territories and dominions thereunto belonging, and hath been sometime since lawfully proclaimed and crowned accordingly, we therefore do, as in duty we are bound, own and acknowledge him to be our sovereign lord and king, and do therefore hereby proclaim and declare his sacred majesty Charles II to be lawful king of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, and all other the territories thereunto belonging. God save the king. With Whaley and Goff living openly in Boston, many people in authority in the province were hoping that they would be pardoned by the new king. However, Hutchinson informs us that when the Indemnity and Oblivion Act was handed down, it specifically accepted regicides like Whaley and Goff from being pardoned for past crimes. The reports afterward were that all the judges would be pardoned but seven. The act of indemnity was not brought over until the last of November. When it appeared that they were not accepted, some of the principal persons in the government were alarmed. Pity and compassion prevailed with others. They had assurances from some that belonged to the general court that they would stand by them, but were advised by others to think of removing. The 22nd of February the governor summoned a court of assistance to consult about securing them, but the court did not agree to it. Finding it unsafe to remain any longer, they left Cambridge the 26th following. By very publicly debating what should be done about the two men, Endicott had signaled to them to get out while the getting was good. He issued an order for their arrest in March but didn't immediately take much action to see them apprehended until after receiving a curt royal order from Charles II in May, which said, Trusty and well-beloved, we greet you well. We being given to understand that Colonel Whaley and Colonel Goff, who stand here convicted for the execrable murder of our royal father of glorious memory, are lately arrived at New England where they hope to shroud themselves securely from the justice of our laws. 
Our will and pleasure is, and we do hereby expressly require and command you forthwith upon the receipt of these our letters to cause both the said persons to be apprehended, and with the first opportunity sent over hither under a strict care to receive according to their demerits. We are confident of your readiness and diligence to perform your duty, and so bid you farewell. Endicott was now on notice to take action against the regicides, but he appears to have still been harboring sympathy for them. About this period, Alexander Winston notes, Present-day America offers no parallel to this reception, but imagine by way of very rough analogy that John Wilkes Booth escaped safely to Virginia to be warmly greeted by Jefferson Davis, prayed over in Richmond churches, and sumptuously dined by the president of William and Mary College. Rather than calling out the militia or sending a trusted lieutenant after them, Endicott deputized two royalist sympathizers who had just arrived in the province, Thomas Kirk and Thomas Kelland. This cunning solution would allow him to appear to be taking every possible step to apprehend the regicides without actually putting the men at much risk. The zealots who were tasked with the search carried it out enthusiastically, but they had no knowledge of local geography or customs and had few local friends or political supporters who could help track down Whaley and Goff. Endicott's very public contemplation of their arrest had its intended effect, and Whaley and Goff wasted no time in fleeing the Bay Colony from neighboring Connecticut. In nine days, they walked about 160 miles to the town of New Haven, where they again found a friendly host in the person of radical minister John Davenport. Whaley stayed with Davenport, while Goff stayed with his next-door neighbor, Thomas Jones, whose father, John Jones, had also signed Charles's death warrant. Three months after Whaley and Goff stepped foot on a Boston-bound ship, John Jones had been hanged, drawn, and quartered back in London. In the meantime, Kellen and Kirk tracked the regicides from Boston to Springfield, and then to Hartford, and finally, on May 11th, to Guilford, which was the capital of New Haven Colony. New Haven was not yet part of Connecticut, and, instead, they were led at the time by Governor William Leet. Guilford was just 18 miles away from the town of New Haven and their quarry, but, as Michael Walsh and Don Jordan recount, this is where things began to go off the rails. It was here that their problems began, for Leet smoothly sabotaged their mission. An account of what transpired was later sent to Endicott by the two royalists. They arrived in Guilford on a Saturday, and Leet received them courteously enough. Then things began to go wrong. To their great discomfort, the governor insisted on reading the king's proclamation aloud, while the locals clustered around, so ruining the royalists' hopes of surprising the fugitives. Leet then asserted that the two colonels had left New Haven nine weeks before. The royalists went back to the governor demanding warrants to search and arrest, and fresh horses to get them to Davenport's home. Much delay and evasion ensued. The horses were provided, but Leet apologetically refused any search and arrest warrant. Before he could issue the document, he would have to consult the New Haven magistrates. This, unfortunately, couldn't be done quickly because the next day was Sunday and nothing was allowed to move in New Haven on the Sabbath. On Monday, the magistrates did convene, but they came to no decision. After agonizing for much of the day, they announced that the freemen of the colony would have to be summoned. 
That would take another four days, the increasingly angry royalists learned. Needless to say, the birds had long flown. On the day that Kirk and Kellen led the search party into Guilford, a Native American rode through the night to warn Davenport, Jones, and their guests. The two colonels were quietly shifted to a secure, if uncomfortable, hiding place not far away, though well hidden from inquisitive eyes. This was a cave halfway up a rocky escarpment a few miles beyond New Haven. It is said that on the Sunday that Reverend Davenport's sermon drew from the book of Isaiah and his favorite proverb, Hide the outcasts, betray not him that wandereth, let mine outcasts dwell with thee. Rumors spread that the regicides had gone south to seek refuge with their co-religionists in New Amsterdam. Kirk and Kelland, thwarted at every turn by Connecticut Puritans who were playing dumb, decided to follow up on that lead and have a word with Dutch Governor Peter Stuyvesant. Within a few weeks, they were back in Boston, empty-handed. Governor Endicott strategically gifted each man a rich farm of 250 acres for their trouble, ensuring that they would not complain too loudly of the opposition they had faced on their search. Meanwhile, the fugitive judges sought refuge in a small Connecticut town called Milford, staying with a sympathizer named Tompkins, so completely isolated that Hutchinson would say, they remained two years without so much as going in the orchard. For the next few years, things were relatively quiet for the judges in Milford. Charles II's agents were busy tracking down their fellow judges in continental Europe, capturing them and carrying them back to England to be tried, tortured, and executed when they could, or simply assassinating them on the spot when they could not. Throughout this period, Goff keeps a diary, and through a network of sympathetic figures, he maintains a correspondence with Increase Mather. These are the papers that Thomas Hutchinson would eventually find in the library of Samuel Mather a century later and use to recreate the judge's story. And these are the papers that a Patriot mob destroyed in 1765. The quiet was broken in 1664 when Charles II turned his attention to New England once again. Alexander Winston describes what happened. In the spring of 1664, Charles sent to Boston what amounted to an expeditionary force. Royal agents commanding four ships and 450 troops dropped anchor on April 23rd with three grand designs in view. To take possession of New Amsterdam for England, to investigate thoroughly the general condition of the colonies, and to bring Whaley and Goff home either in chains or in coffins. Knowing that their location had become something of an open secret in the New Haven colony, Whaley and Goff decided to relocate again before the king's troops could make good on their orders. Traveling only by night, they trekked about a hundred miles, heading back into Massachusetts territory. On the edge of the wilderness, on the very fringes of the territory controlled by the Bay Colony, was the newly formed town called Hadley. It consisted of a palisade wall and the homes of about 50 families. The two judges were invited to move into an upstairs room in the home of Reverend John Russell. Though authorities from Boston and British regulars sometimes performed sweeps through Hadley, the judges remained undetected for over a decade. The elder judge, Edward Whaley, eventually passed away from natural causes in about 1674 or 75. Over a century later, in the 1790s, the new owners of Russell's home were remodeling, and they found his skeleton walled up inside the walls of the basement. 
Richard Goff, the younger man, kept up his correspondence with Boston minister Increase Mather until about 1680, and then he too drops out of the historical record, except for one incident. The second legend inspired by Goff's military service and rank in the old country. Not long after Whaley's death, King Philip's War erupted throughout New England. In 1675, war arrived in the frontier town of Hadley. It's the only part of the regicide story that Thomas Hutchinson retells based on anecdote rather than documentary evidence. He cites a story handed down through the family of New Haven Governor Leet and takes care to note that Goff's journal places Leet in Hadley in 1675. Hutchinson wrote, The town of Hadley was alarmed by the Indians in 1675, in the time of public worship, and the people were in utmost confusion. Suddenly, a grave, elderly person appeared in the midst of them. In his mien and dress, he differed from the rest of the people. He not only encouraged them to defend themselves, but he put himself at their head, rallied, instructed, and led them on to encounter the enemy, who by this means were repulsed. As suddenly, the deliverer of Hadley disappeared. The people were left in consternation, utterly unable to account for this strange phenomenon. It is not probable that they were ever able to explain it. Writing in the 1790s, Stiles relied even more heavily on local lore and recorded this version of the story. During their abode at Hadley, the famous and most memorable Indian war that ever was in New England, called King Philip's War, took place and was attended with exciting universal rising of the various Indian tribes not only of the Narragansett and the sachemdom of Philip at Mount Hope or Bristol, but of the Indians throughout New England, except the sachemdom of Uncas at Mohegan, near New London. Accordingly, the Nipmuc, Quanbog, and Northern tribes were in agitation and attacked the new frontier towns along through New England, and Hadley among the rest, then an exposed frontier. That pious congregation were observing a fast at Hadley on the occasion of this war, and being at public worship in the meeting house there on a fast day, September 1st, 1675, were suddenly surrounded and surprised by a body of Indians. It was the usage of the frontier towns, and even at New Haven in those Indian wars, for a select number of the congregation to go armed to public worship. It was so at Hadley at this time. The people immediately took to their arms, but were thrown into great consternation and confusion. Had Hadley been taken, the discovery of the judges had been inevitable. Suddenly, and in the midst of the people, there appeared a man of very venerable aspect, and different from the inhabitants in his apparel, who took the command, arranged, and ordered them in the best military manner, and under his direction they repelled and routed the Indians, and the town was saved. He immediately vanished, and the inhabitants could not account for the phenomenon, but by considering that person as an angel sent of God upon that special occasion for their deliverance and for some time after said and believed that they had been delivered and saved by an angel. Nor did they know or conceive otherwise till fifteen or twenty years after, when it at length became known at Hadley that the two judges had been secreted there, which probably they did not know until after Mr. Russell's death in 1692. This story, however, of the angel at Hadley was before this universally diffused through New England by means of the memorable Indian War of 1675. The mystery was unriddled after the Revolution, 
when it became not so very dangerous to have it known that the judges had received an asylum here, and that Goff was actually in Hadley at the time, the angel was certainly General Goff, for Whaley was superannuated in 1675. If this event actually happened, which is by no means sure, Increase Mather and Goff's other allies were invested in suppressing the tale, with few or no eyewitnesses who knew what Goff looked like, and with no available documentary evidence, the Angel of Hadley quickly passed into legend. Writing over a century and a half after the events in Hadley, Nathaniel Hawthorne brought back Goff as the folk hero embodied in the Angel of Hadley. In the book Twice Told Tales, the Angel of Hadley becomes the great champion. If you've been listening for a long time, you may recall that back in episode 6, we told the tale of the first revolution that started in Boston. In one of his last official acts before his death, Charles II revoked the charter of Massachusetts Bay Colony and merged it together with Plymouth, Narragansett, Connecticut, Maine, and all the New England colonies into a single Dominion of New England. After Charles II died, his brother and successor, James II, in 1685, appointed a single royal governor to administer all this territory in place of the local governments that the colonists had been accustomed to for half a century. Acting on behalf of a Catholic king, and with no regard for the Magna Carta, Royal Governor Sir Edmund Andros was no friend of the Massachusetts Puritan establishment by the time of the Glorious Revolution. In 1688, a Protestant Prince of Holland, William of Orange, invades England, and William and Mary take the throne in February of 1689. As we recounted in Episode 6, the people of Boston quickly got word of this development and planned to depose the hated Governor Andros. In April of 1689, 86 years almost to the day before the battles of Lexington and Concord, the Massachusetts militia mass outside Boston and prepare to move in on Andros. In Hawthorne's telling, a few hours before the rebellion begins, Andros senses that there's trouble afoot and elects to bring out a company of soldiers to arrest the Puritan leadership embodied in elderly former Governor Simon Bradstreet. O Lord of hosts, cried a voice among the crowd, Provide a champion for thy people. Suddenly there was seen the figure of an ancient man who seemed to have emerged from among the people and was walking by himself along the center of the street to confront the armed band. He wore the old Puritan dress, a dark cloak and a steeple-crowned hat in the fashion of at least fifty years before, with a heavy sword upon his thigh, but a staff in his hand to assist the tremulous gait of age. Who is this gray patriarch? asked the young men of their sires. Who is this venerable brother? asked the old men among themselves. As he drew near the advancing soldiers, and as the roll of the drum came full upon his ear, the old man raised himself to a loftier mien, while the decrepitude of age seemed to fall from his shoulders, leaving him in gray but unbroken dignity. Now he marched onward with a warrior's step, keeping time to the military music. Thus the aged form advanced on one side, and the whole parade of soldiers and magistrates on the other till, when scarcely twenty yards remained between, the old man grasped his staff by the middle and held it before him like a leader's truncheon. Stand, cried he. The eye, the face and attitude of command, the solemn yet warlike peal of that voice, 
fit either to rule a host in the battlefield or be raised to God in prayer, were irresistible. That stately form combining the leader and the saint so gray, so dimly seen, in such an ancient garb, could only belong to some old champion of the righteous cause, whom the oppressor's drum had summoned from his grave. They raised a shout of awe and exultation and looked for the deliverance of New England. The governor and the gentlemen of his party perceiving themselves brought to an unexpected stand rode hastily forward, as if they would have pressed their snorting and affrighted horses right against the hoary apparition. "'What does this old fellow here?' cried Edward Randolph fiercely. "'On, Sir Edmund, bid the soldiers forward and give the dotards the same choice you give all his countrymen, to stand aside or be trampled on.' "'Are you mad, old man?' demanded Sir Edmund Andros in loud and harsh tones. How dare you stay the march of King James's governor? I have stayed the march of a king himself ere now, replied the gray figure with stern composure. I am here, Sir Governor, because the cry of an oppressed people hath disturbed me in my secret place, and beseeching this favor earnestly of the Lord, it was vouchsafed me to appear once again on earth in the good old cause of his saints. And what speak ye of James? There is no longer a popish tyrant on the throne of England. And by tomorrow noon his name shall be a byword in this very street, where ye would make it a word of terror. Back, thou that wast a governor, back! With this night thy power is ended. Tomorrow the prison, back, lest I foretell the scaffold. The people had been drawing nearer and nearer, and drinking in the words of their champion, who spoke in accents long disused, like one unaccustomed to converse, except with the dead of many years ago but his voice stirred their souls. They confronted the soldiers, not wholly without arms, and ready to convert the very stones of the street into deadly weapons. Sir Edmund Andros looked at the old man, then he cast his hard and cruel eye over the multitude and beheld them burning with that lurid wrath so difficult to kindle or to quench, and again he fixed his gaze on the aged form which stood obscurely in an open space where neither friend nor foe had thrust himself. What were his thoughts he uttered no word which might discover, but, whether the oppressor was overawed by the great champion's look or perceived his peril in the threatening attitude of the people, it is certain that he gave back and ordered his soldiers to commence a slow and guarded retreat. Before another sunset, the governor and all that rode so proudly with him were prisoners, and long ere it was known that James had abdicated, King William was proclaimed throughout New England. And who was the great champion? I have heard that whenever the descendants of the Puritans are to show the spirit of their sires, the old man appears again. When eighty years had passed, he walked once more in King Street. Five years later, in the twilight of an April morning, he stood on the green beside the meeting house at Lexington, where now the obelisk of granite with a slab of slate inlaid commemorates the first fallen of the revolution. And when our fathers were toiling at the breastwork on Bunker's Hill, all through that night the old warrior walked his rounds. Long, long may it be, ere he comes again. His hour is one of darkness and adversity and peril. But should domestic tyranny oppress us, or the invader's step pollute our soil, still may the great champion come. For he is the type of New England's hereditary spirit, and his shadowy march on the eve of danger must ever be the pledge that New England's sons will vindicate their ancestry.
In Hawthorne's telling, the Angel of Hadley becomes the great champion. Goff is transported forward in time first 20 years to the downfall of Sir Edmund Andros, then 80 years to the Boston Massacre on King Street, and to the battle on Lexington Green, to Bunker Hill, and beyond. Thomas Hutchinson first framed the story of the regicides as one where dutiful subjects do their best to deliver up wanted fugitives to their restored king. Ezra Stiles made the story into a parable of democracy's triumph over monarchism. And Nathaniel Hawthorne simply creates a legendary action hero, back from the dead to avenge the oppressors of New England. We'll let you choose your own favorite version. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about Puritan UFOs or the hunt for the king killers, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 164. We'll have links to all the sources we quoted from in both stories, as well as information about our upcoming event and this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. And if you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. 